If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Using one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you, I think it's page 886. Uh, one of the things I love about our church is our choir. And uh, to see the emotion on their face as they sing these songs, they're not just entertaining, they're not performing, uh, they're worshiping. And uh, what a joy it is uh, to have them lead us each week. Uh, I wonder this morning if we could begin with a question, uh, are we, or is this, a good church? You ever thought about that? Is this a good church? Are we faithful as a church to the Lord? Now, I think if we just went up and down the, the aisles this morning, that most people would say we are a good church, but I think we should give some thought to that. How do we know we're a good church? How do we, how do we measure that? What, what, is the, what is the standard that we're comparing ourselves against? How do we know whether or not we are a good and a faithful church? There are a lot of different ways we could measure that I think really wouldn't be very informative. We, we could talk about our size. Can you tell a good church by its size? Well, there certainly are churches that are much, much larger than our church, and there are churches that are much, much smaller than our church. And I don't think size really has anything to do with whether or not a church is a good church. I think there are both good and bad churches on each end of that spectrum. Size doesn't answer the question. We might uh, answer or suggest that we're a good church because we are a friendly church. And I do believe we are friendly, and friendliness, as far as it goes, is, is a good thing. It's better than the alternative, right? But I don't know that friendliness is the gold standard, the faithfulness to the Lord. Uh, many places are friendly. Walmart is friendly, uh, but it's not a, it's not a church. I think about Jim Jones and Jonestown. That was a friendly church until they weren't, right? Uh, some of the most theologically liberal, gospel-compromising churches in America are also very friendly churches. And so I don't think we're a good church because we're a friendly church. I don't think we can say we're a good church because of our buildings. As, as proud as we are of the buildings that God has given to us Buildings don't make a church a good church. I don't even think we can claim to be a good church because we are orthodox. You know, this church has a, has a history, has a legacy of faithful Bible teaching from this pulpit, from Sunday school classes and from youth ministry, college ministry and children's ministry for generations. But, but I don't think orthodoxy alone makes you a great church. Jesus, uh, when he let his ministry on the earth, he was very, very critical of the religious leaders of his day, and he was critical of them because they were orthodox and nothing else. They taught the truth, or what they perceived to be the truth, they were very careful with the truth of God, but they didn't let it impact any other area of their lives. They were orthodox, but that was all. I don't think we can measure a great church just by whether it teaches uh, God's word, as important as that is. You certainly couldn't be a good church if you did not do that. But what makes us, if we are, what makes us a good church? What's our purpose here? What are we trying to do? Are we spinning our wheels or are we being faithful to the call of God for our church? What makes a church good? Now we can take those same questions and not just ask them about our church. We can ask them about 
ourselves, just as individuals. And so there's some confusion perhaps about what is a good church, but there's also confusion about what is a good Christian. Are you a good Christian? I mean, what I mean by that is, are you spiritually mature? Are you a fully devoted follower of Christ? Or is there some, uh, some deficiency in your relationship with God? Not perhaps your salvation, but in your, in your devotion to God. Are you, a, are you a good Christian? Now, how would we measure that? What would be our standard to determine the answer to that question? Are you a good Christian? Somebody might suggest, well, we'd measure it by church attendance. And well, church attendance, I think, would be an important factor in that. But you can attend a church very faithfully, and your life can be spiritually crumbling on the inside. That doesn't define a spiritually mature person, church attendance. Somebody might say, well, do you read your Bible? Do you regularly pull aside, read your Bible, and pray? And that, too, would be a very important measurement. But... That's not all there is to the Christian faith. So somebody might say, well, do you keep the commandments? Well, keeping the commandments is very important. But I don't think any of those measurements would really tell us about your, your true maturity and your walk with Christ. Of course, if there were a problem with those things, if you didn't attend church, didn't strive to keep the commandments, didn't read your Bible and pray, that would tell us that there's a problem. But you could do those things and still have a poor relationship with Christ. So are you a good Christian, and how could we possibly know the answer to that question? Well, this morning, I want to help us to to find the answer to both of those questions. Are we a good church, and how do we know? And are you a faithful Christian, and how do you know? I think the same answer will solve both questions, both riddles. How do we know that we're being faithful to the Lord. I think to answer that, what we need to do is to give some organization to some things that we already know. I'm not going to tell you anything this morning that you've not heard before. What I hope to do, though, is to give the things that we know about the Bible. You've been hearing sermons preached for a long time. You've, you've been going to Sunday school classes for a long time. We know you've been reading your Bible for a long time. We know things But I want us to take those things that we know, and I want us to organize them in a way that will give us the answer to the questions, are we a good church, and how do we know, and are we walking faithfully with God, and how do we know? If you were going to build a house, you might call the local lumber company, building supply company, and they could come out with a big truck, and they could just dump all the supplies necessary to build your house on, on a piece of property. You might have... I don't know what all was in a house, but maybe you'd have a thousand studs laying there on the dirt. And they're all bundled up. Maybe you'd have a thousand feet of wire. Maybe you'd have uh, several squares of, of roofing tiles. You'd have uh, a, a dump truck load of bricks. And so all of, this, all of these building materials are, are laid out on a piece of property. But will those building materials, as good as they are, as valuable as they are, will those building materials keep you dry when it rains or warm when it is cold? Do they provide a nice place to live? No. No. Listen, not without some organization. I mean, you're not going to go and, and, and you know, put a couch next to the pile of bricks and, and, and put a, a, a recliner next to a pile of studs and say, look, honey, we've got a new house. No, that pile of building materials has no value until what? 
until it is organized, until somebody who knows what they're doing begins to stand those studs up and, and, and run some wires between them and put a roof over the head. N not until those building materials have been organized do they provide any real benefit. If you're cold, just in case that illustration didn't work, if you're cold and somebody says, I want to I want to help you not be cold, and they give you a big roll of yarn, maybe a hundred yards of yarn. Now, does, does that give you warmth? I mean, you've got this long string, this fuzzy string, but does that give you warmth? Well, no, not in the form that it is in. It only gives warmth when it is organized, right? So somebody who knows how to knit could take that yarn and they give it some organization and they knit it together in some pattern and now it's a sweater. And so really what you had hasn't changed, but it has become valuable because it's organized. A lot of churches faithfully teach and preach God's word week in and week out. They faithfully open the Bible and they teach 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and, and the Gospels and they go to the Old Testament and, and they do a, an excellent job of of preventing, presenting rather, these biblical truths, but until they are organized into some structure, until they are knitted into a sweater, they, they don't really answer the question, are we a good church and are you a faithful believer? And so, as I said, I'm not going to give you anything new this morning. You've, you've got all of the sticks of lumber, you've got all the yarn, you know those things, not that there's not more for us to learn, but you've got the basic pieces. What I want to do is I want to, I want to give it some organization. Now, I've been itching to preach this for a year. And, and so, so I, don't, I don't know what time we'll get to go home today. But um, listen, this is going to be something that you're going to hear every single Sunday from here on out. But we needed to get a few things in place. I wanted the staff to come together and help uh, identify and organize some of these things. And they've done that over the last several months. Uh, but now this is a nail that I'm going to hammer as long as you let me stay your pastor because we need to know as a church exactly what it is that God wants us to do. And we need to know as Christians exactly what does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. And we need to be clear about this. We need to expound upon it. We need to communicate it. You need to know this. You need to know it so if somebody calls you at 2 o'clock in the morning and said, what is a disciple of Jesus, before you even started fussing about being awakened in the middle of the night, you could spout off, here's what the Bible says is a disciple of Jesus. If somebody were to stop you and ask you, what is it that our church is trying to accomplish, you ought to be able to tell them, we're trying to make disciples, and here's exactly what a disciple of Jesus involves. So let's begin this journey by looking at Matthew chapter 28. It's just a brief command. It's an important command, but a brief command that Jesus gives to the church. It is really the last instruction that he gives for believers before he ascends to heaven. You're familiar with it, I'm sure, but I want us to read it together this morning. Let's stand, if you don't mind just to give special reverence and honor uh, to the truthfulness and the reliability of God's word. So Matthew 28, verse 18 says, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, what does that mean? Jesus has just let them know that he's going to tell them to do something, and he has the authority to say this. 
If, if your boss walks into a staff meeting and says, the first thing we need to clear up is, I'm the boss. Now, you know the second thing that you're going to clear up is something he wants you to do, and you better do it, right? And so Jesus says, I have all authority, and so you better do it. And then look at verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our instruction is to go and make disciples. That's what our church should do. And what should we do? We should be disciples. Please be seated. You know, every church in America would agree with what they read in these verses. How could you disagree with Jesus uh, in his last command after he has asserted the fact that he has all authority to give this command? But I, I think many churches just lack the organization uh, to make their belief in this command have any meaning, have any value. I think if you went to most churches in America and you said, are you devoted, are you committed to making disciples, they would say what? Yes, yes. Almost every church would say that. But then if you said, well, what exactly is a disciple then? I think you'd get blank stares <laughs> from most people in most churches. I'm afraid you'd get blank stares from many pastors once they had reaffirmed their commitment to make disciples, if you asked them to define that, to explain what do they mean by that, they would begin to stumble over their words because they don't really know. And then if you were to say, well, how many disciples have you made in the last year? They would say, well, I don't know. When was the last time you did make a disciple? I don't know. And it's not because those people are not believing in God's word. It's not because they don't love the Lord. It's because they've not looked to scripture, organized what we know to be true, and carefully defined a disciple. And so we're going to define a disciple this morning. Now, before we get there, I want you to know that there's some danger in not doing this. There is personal danger because if you don't know what God means, what Christ means when he says that we should be disciples, then there's danger in you not being a comprehensive disciple. Do you know what I mean? You may be leaving something out. If you go to the doctor, they, they, they will encourage you, the doctor might encourage you to take vitamins because there are all these chemicals, and I don't understand how it works, but they say your body needs all these different chemicals in order to function properly. Well, we know that medically, but what about spiritually? If we don't know the things that God expects of us, then I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about spiritual health. If we don't know what a fully devoted follower of Christ means, according to Scripture, we may be lacking and not be aware of it. So there's a danger personally, and then there's a danger for our church. We might just fail to make disciples. We might be spinning our wheels. We might be having worship services that we all enjoy and, 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 and programs that, that people are impressed with, but all of that might come together and not make any disciples. We might think we have a good church when from God's perspective, we are failing if we don't know exactly 
what a disciple is. But if we do know, then there's motivation personally. I can look at my life and see if there are deficiencies that I need to address. If we do know as a church, we can make sure that we're spending our money making disciples, not spending our wills. That that we're focusing our energy on making disciples, that we're preaching sermons that make disciples and not just to simply have church. So let's see if we can identify these. Uh, I want to briefly just tell you what they are. There are four things. And, and then, so, so don't write anything down, just, just hang with me a minute. Then we'll take some time, we're going to go through these one at a time, and I will give you a little bit of information on each one. But what are the four things that the Bible tells us, the four categories that would make someone a disciple? A fully devoted follower of Christ, what are those four things? Well, first of all, he needs to love God, Right? If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, there needs to be a love, a passion for God. We'll talk more about what that means in a moment, but that's where it begins. We must love God. Number two, we need to love people. We're going to see in a moment, and you know these things, but we're going to see in a moment that that Christianity is not a solo sport, but we have to be connected not only with God, but with other people in order to fully live out the Christian life. A a fully devoted follower of Christ loves God, loves people. Number three, she serves the body, serves the body, the body of Christ, the local church. And so the Bible has much to say about that. A, a, A fully devoted follower of Christ is busy serving in and through his local church. And then number four, he serves the world. Not only is he making an impact in his local church, but he's making famous the name of Christ to the ends of the earth. The Bible makes that clear. That's a part of being a fully devoted follower of Christ. And so what does a follower of Christ look like? Someone who loves God, loves people, serves the body, and serves the world. Now we're going to get in great detail this morning or some more detail. And then over the next few weeks and years, we're going to, this will be a broken record after a while. We'll go into just um, incredible detail in these things. Uh, but, but let me just make some observations first. Number one, these four things are biblical. This isn't uh, legalism. We've not come up with a list of non-biblical commands. Uh, we have used biblical language and biblical concepts. All of these things come straight from the word of God Uh, Your ministry staff wrestled with these things for a long time. We pulled together for a couple of days, and we asked ourselves the question, what does the Bible say should be true of a fully devoted follower of Christ? And and, and we we named about 100 different things, and we wrote them on big post-it notes, and we covered the side of... uh, of a wall in a a hotel conference room, and and we prayed about it, and we studied it, and and we tried to group them together, and we looked up scripture, and then we went home, and we prayed about it some more, and then we came back together and talked about it again. And, and, And our goal was to be thoroughly biblical. We couldn't put something on the list if God didn't put it on the list, and we couldn't omit something that God included. This is a biblical list of what God means when he says that we're to be disciples of Christ. The second thing I want you to notice is that there's some chronology to this. Love God, love people, serve the body, serve the world. Now we'll spend much time on this in the days to come, but typically 
somebody experiences these things in order. Now, there are always exceptions, and everybody has a little different path of spiritual maturity. But generally, it starts with loving God. The first thing that happens is someone comes to know Christ as as, as their Savior and Lord. They're forgiven. They're adopted into the family of God. They begin to read their Bible. They begin to worship and, and, and pray and strive for a holy life to live a life that's honoring to God. So generally, our spiritual journey starts with loving God. And then the second part, number two in our spiritual journey, is to connect with other people. It's to learn to lean upon and depend upon other people, to pray for them, and to, to hold them accountable, have them hold us accountable. That's usually step number two. Step number three, we serve the body. We find some places to serve, and sometimes it takes a little experimenting, see what we're good at, see what we have a passion uh, to, to do. But, but we get busy. As you grow in your faith, you get busy serving God in the church. And then number four, we serve the world. We learn better how to share the gospel with our neighbors and with our family members. But beyond that, we, we go into the world, whether it's by going or giving or praying, we go into the world so that our lives will make an impact for Christ everywhere. And so there's a little bit of a chronology to this. And so I would ask you, and I'm going to ask you this at the end of the, end of the sermon, but think about it now. If this is a chronology, what number are you? Are you a number one? Are you a zero? I mean, we've we got, got to start from the beginning, I suppose. I mean, and I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. Some people hadn't gotten to... To, to, to the place where they love God. They, 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 they don't understand the, the forgiveness that's available and the love of Christ that they can receive. So you got to get from zero to one. Some people need to make that transition this morning. Some people are number ones, but you need to get to number twos. I mean, you love God, but you're not really connected with other believers. So some people are number twos, but you're not number threes. You're not serving. And, and, and what we learn from this is that if, if you love God and you're connected with people, you go to Sunday school and you're in fellowships and you're praying with people, you've got that mastered. But if you're not serving the local body of Christ, you're not a disciple. I'm not suggesting you're not a Christian. That, that, that's, that's something different here. You, you love God. You, you've put your trust in him. But, but, but you shouldn't rest at number two. Because a fully devoted follower of Christ, according to Scripture, is someone who also serves the body. And so some people are number twos, need to be number threes. Some people are number threes, they need to be number fours. Now you might say, well, I'm too old, or that doesn't fit, and, and we'll talk about that over the next few weeks. But no, everybody can be a number four. It won't look the same for everybody. Everybody's not going to be an M. Ott. Where is M. Ott? Nope. Everybody's not going to go to, to, to Syria and uh, share the gospel, but, but, but all of us can be number fours. All of us can be there. So some, be, some of us are threes, need to be fours. So there's some chronology to this. Now, the last thing, before we get into the details, the last thing I notice about these four things is that none of them get finished. It's not like you do number one and you're finished, and now you do number two and then you're finished, and you do number three. No, we need to do all four of these things. We need to strive in all four of these areas for the rest of our lives. Uh, sometimes churches, when they organize this, and this isn't a bad way of doing it, I'm not critical of this kind of organization, this has been very effective to explain this to people through the years, but some churches think about it as a baseball diamond. You ever seen that? And so you, you, know, you go to first base and the second base and third base, and that's good. That's not a bad way of doing it. But, but what happens sometimes is people think, 
You know, I've, I've left first base, now I need to focus on second base. So I don't need to focus on reading my Bible and praying and loving God. I'm, I'm on to number two, I'm on to number three. But no, the truth is, all four of these things should be the focus. We should strive to excel in all four areas. That's a fully devoted follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's look at these one at a time. What does it mean to be a disciple, number one, a true disciple loves God. Now, this is the easiest one to understand, perhaps. Matthew 22, I can show this to you on the screen, I believe. Matthew 22, 37 and 38. Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important command. And so it begins with a love and a passion for God. Now, I think there are two parts to that. I think when we talk about a passion for God, there is a birth and a life. I can't think of a better way to explain it. And, and that's, that's biblical language. That's how the Bible explains it, to, to be reborn and to, and to live our life for the Lord. Uh, more than once in the last two or three weeks, I have asked people, um, both in our community and here in our church, to tell me about their, their faith. And, and on more than one occasion, I've talked to somebody who could tell me about their Christian life, but couldn't tell me about their Christian birth. So it's important to know that there are two parts to this. Because there are some people who can tell you about their Christian birth, but they can't tell you about their Christian life. So what does it mean to love God? Well, first of all, it means to have a birth. It means to be saved. It means that there is a once-for-all decision in your life. When you recognize you're guilty of sin, you have no hope except what Jesus has done on the cross. You receive his forgiveness based on his work, not yours. You confess your sins, you repent, and you surrender to him. And the Bible says we are adopted into the family of God. So to love God means, first of all, to be born into his family. That, that has to be number one. Don't think you can live the Christian life without being born as a Christian. You, you first have to be born. There, there, there are too many people, and, and, and it, it bothers me because, uh, but because I'm afraid there are people who hear me preach every week, whether here or on television, who think they're a Christian because they're striving to keep some commands they've heard somewhere, but they've never had a spiritual birth. And you're not a Christian just because you try to keep some rules. No, Christianity starts with a birth. It starts with a birth. If you ask me when my kids were born, I can tell you. Two of my kids, one I'm not real sure, she's adopted, but... Uh, uh, but we have a birthday nonetheless. We know she was born, right? We might not be able to pick the day, but we know she was born. And, and so if you ask me when my kids were born, I don't, I don't say, well, you know, it was, in the, it was in the 90s somewhere. I don't know. It was just sort of gradually. I mean, we, we thought about having kids. And then, you know, for a couple of weeks, we sort of had a kid. And then a couple more weeks, we kind of had a child. And then, you know, a month later, we mostly had a child. And then before we realized it, here we are. We're parents. No, that's not at all how it happened. Ask my wife. That's not, that's not how it happened. We were in a room, and it was me and her and a doctor and a nurse. I counted them. There were four of us. And then, bang, there's five people in the room. I mean, it happened at a moment in time. Somebody wrote it down on a piece of paper. 
Spiritual birth is the same way. You don't gradually become a believer, a Christian. So, so to love God means that you're born as a Christian, that you are reborn. Nobody's born as a Christian, but you are reborn as a Christian. And, but then there's the Christian life. To love God doesn't just mean that there's some spiritual experience in your past. To love God means that you are that you're loving God. My marriage is not just a wedding ceremony that happened a couple of decades ago. No, my marriage is a, is a life of love and walking with my wife. And the same is true of God. So there's spiritual birth and there's spiritual living. Spiritual living involves a couple of things. I know I'm going fast, but I just want to, get you to give you the overview today. Spiritual living means a godly lifestyle, holy living and wise living, and it means eager worship. Both a personal devotion, I'm spending time with God every day, reading my Bible and praying, and in corporate worship, that I'm, I'm, I'm eager to come and worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. We'd have a passion for God. A fully devoted follower of Christ is someone who loves God. You need, I need to excel in our love for the Lord and our church. Listen, our church needs to be purposeful about helping people Love God. When I preach a message, the goal of my message shouldn't be to make you smarter. It shouldn't be to make you um, more knowledgeable about scriptural issues. Because, see, that's not a component in being a disciple of Christ, right? No, my, my preaching ought to be persuasive. It, it, my, my preaching ought to be to help people live a life that's wiser and more godly. And uh, for people to have a more eager heart for worship, both personally and publicly. Um, so, so our church needs to be purposeful about helping people love God. We, we need to be thinking about in, 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 in this county, and I don't know the numbers. I, I should, I don't. But in this county, there are tens of thousands of people many of whom, in, in, in this measurement, they're zeros, right? I mean, I'm not criticizing them, but they're not. They're zeros, and we want them to be ones. And our, and our church needs to be asking ourselves every day. We need to be asking ourselves when we put our budget together. We need to be asking ourselves in staffing decisions, are we helping zeros become ones? Are we helping people who don't know Christ to love God? A disciple loves God. Number two, a true disciple loves people. Look at this verse or this passage with me, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us watch out for one another. Now that, that phrase, one another, is, is a phrase that is repeated hundreds of times in the New Testament. Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. As I said earlier in the message, Christianity is not meant to be a solo sport. Sometimes people will ask me, Pastor, can I be a Christian and not go to church? Now, I struggle with that question, not because I don't know the answer, but because I do. I mean, what I want to say when somebody asks me that is I want to just simply say no. Now, the reason I don't say that is because there's not a Bible verse that says if you don't go to church, you're not a Christian. But, but I know the answer for the most part is no because, listen, because people who are not connected with other believers their faith generally fizzles out. And the Bible says that if you fizzle before the finish, I mean, there was a fault at the first, that there's something wrong with your faith because real faith always lasts. And it's, 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 the, it's my experience. But more than my experience, it's, it's the word of God 
that people who are not connected with other believers, people who are seeking to do the Christian life alone, they never persevere. They hardly, I mean, somebody will come up to me and give me an exception at the end of the service, and I'm not going to argue with you, but the exception proves the rule. They hardly ever persevere. So here's how I answer the question. If you're just curious, you won't have to ask me now. Uh, can you be a Christian and not go to church? You can't be much of a Christian. And in my head, I'm thinking, no, but I'm trying to be more politically correct, I guess, as I answer the question. But you, you, you know, most of the commands in the New Testament, so to be a Christian, you want to honor God by following his commands. Did you know most of the commands in the New Testament you cannot do by yourself? You, you can't. Let me just read some. This is probably more than I should read, but I'll, how much time do I have? I'll go through my list a little bit. Romans 12.10, love one another deeply. Can you do that by yourself? 1 Thessalonians 5.15, pursue what is good for one another. Romans 15.17, accept one another. Romans 16.16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we don't actually do that in East Texas, but... Uh, uh, but it's in the Bible, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three, 33, welcome one another. Galatians 5, 15, serve one another. Ephesians 4, 2, bear with one another. Colossians 3, 16, admonish one another. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Romans 14, 19, build up one another. Ephesians 4, 32, forgive one another. Ephesians 5, 19, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Ephesians 4.21, submit to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encourage one another. Hebrews 10.24, watch out for one another. Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Hebrews 10.25, gather with one another. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another. You can't do any of those things by yourself. And that's a sampling of what the Lord tells us in the New Testament to do. So a fully devoted follower of Christ is connected to God, but he's also, she's also connected with other people. I love to grill. And uh, one of the things I've, I've learned, and you know this if you're a griller, is that you can have all those red hot coals, but if you'll reach in there with the tongs and you take one red hot coal out and you set it to the side, what's going to happen to it? It's going to lose its heat. It's going to go out. And if you're not connected with other people in a real significant way, if you're not connected with other people, you're going to lose your spiritual heat and you're going to burn out. In my previous church, one of the things we did was we closely tracked uh, visitors who would come to our church. Uh, we had a system, and we'll do this one day here, but uh, we, we had a, a, an elaborate system where we tracked and we knew what the status was on, on every visitor uh, that had come to our church in, in recent months. And so we learned some things. We learned that if somebody came, we always had them fill out a visitor card like most churches do. And then we would take that visitor card, we'd send them a letter from the pastor, but we also sent them a survey. Uh, it would just ask questions like, were you treated friendly? Uh, you know, what did you think of the sermon? What did you think of the music? Was the parking convenient? Uh, those kind of things. Were, were the restrooms clean? We learned that people liked to have their have an opportunity to share their opinion. So we'd send this survey out, self-addressed stamped, self stamped envelope so they could send it back, and many people did. And generally, people had very good things to say. People would say that they enjoyed the worship service, that people were friendly, that uh, you know, the message was okay, and the music was fun. And so people said, said nice things, and people would say nice things here. But here's what we discovered. 
Those people who said sometimes that, oh, it was life-changing and I love the worship service, those people would typically come four times over the next six weeks, and then they disappeared. We never saw them again. It didn't matter how many times we called them or went to see them or sent them letters, whatever. They came four times in the next six weeks, and then their crisis was over. Whatever got them to come to church, whatever they were scared of, or it's over, and it sort of played out of their system. They didn't come back. But if those people attended one small group meeting, we call that Sunday school here. We call it something different there, but same, same principle. If they attended one small group event, they went to Sunday school class, met some people, then those people stayed three months. Okay, if they didn't come, even though they said it was life-changing, they still quit in six weeks. But if they went to one small group and met somebody, they stayed for three months. If they went to three, we found out that was the key number, three. If they went to three small group classes, they went to Sunday school three times, you know what? They stayed forever. Now, why was that? Maybe we preached the best messages we could preach. We sang the prettiest songs we could sing. That, that, that get them through about six weeks, Andre. So why was a third time in a Sunday school class where, you know, some classes better than others, you know, with teaching and those kind of things. But the third time in a Sunday school class, why? why? Well, because a key part of growing as a Christian is making friends with other Christians, linking arms and living the Christian life together. And, and if somebody, it, when they came three times, they, that meant they made a connection. And those people, their faith lasted. Uh, a, a true disciple loves people. Uh, number three, a true disciple serves the body of Christ. First Corinthians chapter 12, look at this with me on the screen. Uh, Jesus, uh, Paul writes of the church, there are many parts but one body. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And so Jesus says that his body is the church. Now think about that a moment. What does that mean? So I've got a head. I mean, this is the way Jesus is thinking about it. I have a head and a body. Now, in my head, there's a brain that thinks a lot of things, but if I, if I want to do something, if my brain wants to pick this book up and set it down, how does my brain accomplish that? My brain tells my body, and my body generally does what my brain tells it to do. Okay, that's how the brain and the body works. Same thing with Christ. So the Bible says Christ is the head, and we are the body. Sometimes people will say, well, I, um, I, I wish we would see Christ do more. Well, I, what they mean by that is they want some miracle to be on television and some statue to cry or something. I don't know what they mean by that. But you know, you know what God thinks when he hears somebody say, I wish Christ would do more? He's thinking, I agree. Christ's body needs to do more. How does Christ do something? Through his body. If there's, a, if there's a poor person living in the woods behind the church, does Christ want to help that person? Yes. How will Christ do it? Christ the head will tell his body, and when you see the poor person going down the street tomorrow morning, you'll stop and help her. You'll stop and help him. That's the body of Christ doing something. Now, have you ever wondered why God does it that way? That doesn't seem very efficient. Uh, because I, I'm part of the body of Christ. And, you know, we're lazy, right? We're distracted. 
We, we're not, we, my hands are more obedient to my head than his hands are obedient to him. So why does God do it that way? Why doesn't God just work directly instead of through his body? It's because, listen, it's not about God accomplishing things. It's about you and I being fully devoted followers of Christ and being his body. Does that make sense? It's not, a, it's not about what gets accomplished as much as it's about us accomplishing it. God's not just interested in what happens. God is interested in us going through the process of doing it. So uh, I can remember teaching, or my wife really did the teaching, but we teaching my youngest daughter to do long division. When was the last time you did a long division problem? Isn't that miserable? That is, that is a straight from hell. I just, uh, that's a <laughs> terrible thing. And I'm a math person. I like math. And so, you know, she'd have 20 long division problems. And she'd struggle over that just like, uh, you know, probably some of us, if we had to whip that out and do that today, we'd struggle. Now, there was an easier way. Do you know, there was an easier way to get the answers to those 20 problems. I could whip out a calculator and I could do it just like that. So why did we put her through the suffering of doing the problems when we could have easily come up with the answers? Because it wasn't about getting the answers. It was about her working the problems. It's not about God getting stuff done. I mean, that, that, that's a part of it. But it's about God working through his people. So you're not a fully devoted follower of Christ if you're not a part of the body of Christ that's doing something in and through your local church. you got to find something. And, and maybe we haven't always done a good job of helping you. That's a part of this. This is going to change everything we do in our church because we're going to focus on these four things and nothing else. But between me and you, between you and our staff, we, we've got to figure some things out. And everybody has to serve. Nobody can, needs to feel like they are a fully devoted follower of Christ if they're not serving in the local body. That's what the Bible teaches us. You ever heard of the Pareto principle? That 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people? You know, that's true in business. It's true in the church. But it shouldn't be. God doesn't want any spectators. God doesn't want any bench warmers. God wants us all in the game. Well, number four, a true disciple serves the world by spreading the good news. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, this is literally the last thing he said before he ascended, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, and you know the next verse, lo, I'm with you always. People quote that verse and and uh, they say, it's so comforting that uh, God is always with me. And it is true that God is always with you, but that's not what that says. God, and what it really says is God is with you while you're going and making disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. God is with you when you're on mission for him. And so a truly devoted follower of Christ is going to be a part of sharing the gospel around the world. Uh, have you ever wondered... You've probably heard pastors say this before, but have you ever wondered why God doesn't take us to heaven when we, when we pray to receive Christ? Wouldn't that be neat? You sit down with somebody and you share the gospel with them and they pray to receive Christ. And when they say amen at the end of the prayer, they just zoom, and then God just takes them up. And um, why didn't God do that? I mean, if you think about it logically, 
Uh, We'll be able to learn the Bible a lot better in heaven than we will on earth. We will be able to live a holy life much better there than here. We, We will have sweeter fellowship there than here. We will worship better there. The choir will even sound better in heaven. So why didn't God just take us to heaven? Because he wants us to make his name famous here. God has left us here. Not first for fellowship, not first for worship, not first for holy living, not first for Bible study. We need to do all those things, but we're just sort of getting started on those things. No, God has left us here so so we can be a part of the gospel going forth around the world. You're not a fully devoted follower of Christ if you're not a part of the gospel going to the world. The expectation, uh, biblically speaking, that our Lord has is that every Christian would be engaged in this everywhere. Now, there are many ways to be involved. Some will go, some will pray, some will give, some will encourage. Um, But all of us, this can't be a side job. This has got to be the focus of every person. Missions, missions, sharing the gospel. And and you notice, uh, one more thing, and I'm running out of time. It doesn't say Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then the ends of the earth. Sometimes we think, well, why are we going to Africa to share the gospel? There are plenty of lost people here. And generally the people who say that aren't actually very concerned about the lost people here either. But uh, you're right, there are lost people here. So go share with lost people and then go to Africa. See, it, it doesn't say do one and when you finish there, go to the next place. It says that our church and that us as individuals, we should be engaged around the world at the same time. We need to be spreading the good news. So how do you measure up with these four things? Uh, As a church, we got to really answer that question over the next few months. And and we'll we'll never be finished answering it, but we need to answer that question. We need to look at every dollar we're spending and say, is this dollar helping somebody become a disciple? Is it helping a zero become a one, a one become a two, a two becoming a three, or three becoming a four? And if it's not, listen, friends, we don't need to spend it. We don't need to spend it. We, we're not here just to have some, uh, some, some club or to spin our wheels. We're here to make disciples. We need to take an honest look at that. We need to look at every calendar event. We need to look at every sermon. We need to look at every ministry. We need to look at every policy. And we need to ask ourselves, are we being faithful to the call that God has for us? We say, are we a good church? Everybody says, yes, yes, we're a great church. But, but we need to start measuring that. And I think we are a good church. I mean, I'm not suggesting we're not. But, but we need to measure that by the, by the biblical parameters of the instructions that God has given to us, these four things. Too often churches shoot the arrows and then draw the targets. You know what I mean? You've heard that illustration. Some guy goes out and... He sees that somebody shot four arrows into the side of a barn and each arrow is right in the middle of a bullseye. And he says, how in the world did you shoot so accurately? He said, well, I didn't. I shot the arrows and I got out my paint and I painted the bullseyes wherever the arrows landed. See, churches do that all the time. We, we just do what we've always done and we've gotten sort of good at it. You know, we go through this little, little thing we do every week and we've done for every year. And, 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 and then we get to the end and we pat ourselves on the back saying, boy, we're doing a good job. Well, maybe we are, but maybe we're not. Maybe we're, maybe we're hitting the targets that God has drawn for us. Love God, love people, serve uh, the body, serve the world, and helping people do that. Or maybe we're, just, maybe we're just hitting the side of the barn 
and drawing the, drawing the arrow. So how's our church doing? And then how are we doing? How are you doing? Are you a, a zero, a one, a two, a three, a four? That, no, that ought to unsettle us a little bit. Uh, where, where do we need to focus more energy? Not so as to get God to love us. God loves us. That's not, that's not what this sermon's about. Not so that God won't get you. Uh, not, not because we're trying to earn the favor of God. But, but when we think about what it means to truly honor God, I think all four of those things have to be true in our lives. So with your head bowed and eyes closed, let me just give you the four things again. I just, I just want you to mull over this. I just want you to have a little spiritual meditation here for a moment. You give yourself a grade. You ask the Holy Spirit to give you a grade. A truly devoted follower of Christ loves God, passionate for God. A truly devoted follower of Christ has linked arms with others, loves people, and people are encouraging you, and you're encouraging others, and you're praying for people because you know them and because they know you. How are you doing with loving people? A truly devoted follower of Christ serves the body. Busy serving the body. A truly devoted follower of Christ serves the world. Father, help us uh, to be a church that's on target, that, that continues to be on target in every ministry. Help us to be a church that makes disciples, that continues to make disciples. And let it begin with each of us taking a very close look in our heart and lives and asking the Holy Spirit to show, if show us if there's any offensive or deficient way in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing People Make Decisions.